umgoblue.com by fans for fans since 1999 hello welcome to the umgoblue.com podcast this is phil callahan along with clint derringer and we have a lot of topics to go over today really excited as we're turning the corner in july heading toward a full football season, which is going to feel great after the abbreviated season we had last year due to COVID. Well, Clint, first thing up is uh, college football playoff expansion has again reared its head. The idea is kicking around for a 12-team format. What are your thoughts on that? I, I thought that expansion was inevitable because... There's money to be made. It felt like uh, increasing the number of playoff games and trying to get a um, a captive market in terms of television audience uh, was too good an opportunity to not be capitalized on by the powers that be. So it, it always felt uh, inevitable to me um, from that standpoint. So it was kind of a matter of what's the best way to make it fun for the, the the fans, the viewing public, and, and the the sport at large, so I, I thought that it was a surprise that they skipped over the the standard eight team bracket and jumped right to the the twelve team bracket with uh, buys for the top four seeds. I think that it's a it's an improvement. I like that you would reward the teams that had the best regular season with a buy in the playoffs to kind of keep some of those late season games. Uh, keep the the higher ranked teams motivated to keep playing well, um, but I thought that there would be a slower progression through a normal eight team bracket, and that twelve would come further down the line. So that was a positive surprise. And then the other big um, change that that I think that I'm most in favor of is the the idea of the first round games between the fifth seed through the twelfth seed teams. Um, the higher-seeded team would play a home game on campus, and obviously that's going to be late in the season, likely in December. So some of the structural disadvantages for Big Ten teams and other northern teams during bowl season, always traveling to warm-weather climates and playing teams that are uh, from those warm-weather climates, uh, there might be a little bit of a turnabout there where if, uh, you know, a, a Michigan or or other, you know, Midwestern or Big Ten team is in that five, six, or seven-seeded range, then you might have to see some of the SEC teams or Pac-12 teams uh, coming into the Midwest in December and playing in the cold weather outside, um, hopefully at the big house. Um, so those are the biggest, uh, the biggest things that I, I took notice of. I think both of those, both the twelve-man bracket or the twelve-team bracket, and the uh, the first-round home games are are very welcome additions. And expansion overall, I think, has been inevitable for a while. So um, there's there's just too much money involved. So definitely some things that I I liked. Now it, it's interesting, you know, you you comment on that that they went from the eight team to the twelve model team pretty quickly. For me, I take that as they're getting serious about it, right? Because right now, the the existing contract runs for 12 years. It runs all the way until uh, the 25-26 season, right? 
So if they're going to rip that contract up, which I would which I would love to see, I would love to see this happen sooner rather than later, right? So I think what what we're seeing here is if they're going to have a they're going to need a really good reason, a really good incentive to rip that contract up and get as much support as they can from not only the traditional powers, but the teams that hope to fill out the uh, the bottom rung of those of that bracket. Right. So uh, that they went to 12 teams right away uh, makes me really excited. I really like, you know, the things that that, you know, notice the things that you said. I love that they're going to be um, on campus games. I love the idea of, of incentivizing uh, the top tier teams so that the uh, you still have you know important games heading into the back half of the season. Um, one thing that that I question, okay, and I, I've heard this, I've heard rumor of this, right? And um, again, when I say rumor, I hear discussion. Is that I really want to see. You know, and let's let's be clear. We're talking about Michigan, Ohio State, and Notre Dame, right? We're talking about our little midwestern cluster of hopefully teams that will will be a part of this. I really want to see those games on campus. I have heard rumor of and discussion of, hey, wouldn't it be great if we were to have that in Indianapolis every year? And you know, similar to how they do with the Big Ten championship. I'm not a fan of that. Okay. Um, I think that's great for Indianapolis, you know, Godspeed, but, uh, you know, and it may be good from a planning standpoint and a TV and a weather standpoint, but if it's going to be on campus, make it on campus, okay? Make them go to the horseshoe, make them go to the big house, make them go to Notre Dame Stadium, no matter what the weather is, because uh, as you've alluded to, that's one of the the uh, um, advantages that Northern teams, Midwestern teams have is they're used to playing outside there. You know, you want it to be a true home game. Um, you know, and, and I, I'm pretty clear. I have a pretty clear record on this. You know, when, when Brandon, uh, David Brandon was the athletic director and, you know, he wanted to have, you know, a big game where Michigan would surrender a home game and go play Alabama down in Texas or, or in Florida or in Georgia, you know, that really screws the, the, the season ticket holders and it screws the home fans. So um, I, I want to be cleared that if they're going to do this on campus by, I want it to be truly on campus. Yeah, I, I agree with that whole wholeheartedly. And there are other, there are other questions that have to get answered, right? I think um, the number of games uh, in the typical regular season has to get looked at uh, in order to be able to impl- implement this model. You know, the, it's not that, uh, it's not that far out of the realm of possibility that a five or a six seed who played in that first round would then play three playoff games. And if that is a, a conference champion, right, they might have played 12 or 13, um, you know, regular season games plus the conference championship game. So 13 and three, 16 games um, when, you know, usually it's, it's 12 plus one, 13 uh, through that, that season. So that's a lot more wear and tear on uh on the bodies of of the the kids that are that are playing the game um so i think that you've got to kind of figure out a way to mitigate that risk as much as possible and then also it it calls back into question some of the differences with how conferences 
create their schedules. You know, the the biggest difference, at least in my mind, is the the SEC only playing eight conference games as opposed to you know the Big Ten playing nine, and that uh, some of those wrinkles are, are going to get discussed, I'm sure, as, as this goes forward. But there, the other major advantage or, or improvement that this brings in is that there are going to be teams from the group of five, um, Cincinnati most recently being an example, uh, the undefeated UCF team that Scott Frost put together. Those teams now are at least going to have a chance to actually play against the, uh, the, the power five teams. And I, I feel at some point that you're going to get that kind of Cinderella story, underdog um, story narrative that, um, you know, that reminds me of, of kind of the, the Jim Valvano 1985 NC State basketball team that took down, um, you know, Phi Slamma Jamma that, you know, that was so famous. So the, the folks that criticized most of these moves have two main arguments that for the reason that they did not want the playoffs to expand is that number one, they like the do or die, um, kind of structure of the regular season games as they are that if you lose a game you're pretty much out of the playoffs if you lose two games you're definitely out of the playoffs they like that um kind of winner take all on every single week they feel that the expansion of playoffs will reduce the stakes uh of every regular season matchup so that's one concern the other concern is that now with um, the four teams that have kind of been at the top of the heap uh, in the recent history with Ohio State, Alabama, Clemson, Oklahoma, um, those teams now are, one argument is that this will increase parity, but I think the folks that um, are against expansion think that it, it will actually decrease parity across college football because now, for example, that 2019 Alabama team with three losses probably still gets in as an at-large, and you're still going to see Alabama in the playoffs. You know, you're still going to see some of these teams that are given a little bit of grace um, because uh, it, every regular season game is not do or die. Another good example would be that 2015 Ohio State team with uh, Zeke Elliott. You know, that that dropped the game in Columbus to the Spartans. And then really put a hammer on uh, Michigan in the final week. You know, that might have been Urban Meyer's best Ohio State team. So um, these are the things that, that are at least floating out there. I think uh, all of those are reasonable conversations to have. But, uh, again, for me, it was inev- inevitable anyway because of the money that's at stake. So it was always more productive just to start thinking about which system I personally thought would, would benefit the most. And I like the on-campus games in the first round. That's a big thing that I would have been an advocate for. And then I like rewarding the the top teams with the bye because of some of those uh, that say that the regular season games don't matter anymore if you expand the playoffs. Well, now uh, I think competing and trying to get that, that week off to rest um, after your regular season is a big deal. So I think, um, you know, how I would tweak this, right? I think it's okay. I'm not going to get what I want, right? Um, 
I want to know, I want a way in a perfect world, every team at the highest level would know exactly what they would need to do to make the playoffs, right? Um, if that means winning your conference or, you know, I, I think that's the easiest path, right? So while conference champions are given preference here, um, you know, you could still foresee, uh, you know, some permutations and some combination of factors where a, a lower tier conference could win a championship and, and you know, again, uh you know, somehow lightning strikes and you, you're, you know, you're a lower tier conference, you win a championship and, um, you know, you're not the top, you're not one of the top six ranked conference champions and you're not high enough in the rankings where you don't make it right now with that said, nothing's going to be ever, nothing is ever going to be perfect. Um, I think this is a good combination of giving preference to conference champions while you still, you know, and I always say this, the reason that you will never see a true play-in um, football championship, right, is that the media and the coaches and the, uh, the, the folks who run college football, right, the, the media industrial complex wants to have a say, right? There's a reason why, you know, you hear everybody complaining about computers deciding rankings, Okay, computers don't decide rankings. You decide what criteria you want before the season, and you know you have a spreadsheet that calculates calculates the ratings. What people want is they want to be able to argue who should be in. Like your example of that three loss Alabama team, you know that's uh, that's grist for the mill, right? College football and and I would say sports in general lives on arguments and and going back and forth, right? So what we see in this proposed system is it's a combination of, hey, you're still going to have a real leg up if you're you're a conference champion, and then you're going to give the media industrial complex a say to, to side the rest. And, uh, and then, you know, you throw it on the field and see what happens. Now, what's interesting to me in this, and, and I, I, I wonder if this is one of the reasons why we've seen the acceleration from an 8-team plan to a 12-team plan, is I don't think we can over-exaggerate the financial impact of last season on college football. Not only the individual schools, but the networks, Everyone. I mean, so I think what we're seeing here is, you know, just as we've talked about that the players have an opportunity to kind of renegotiate collectively their deal, right? How they're compensated. I think that college football, hopefully, you know, and and I talk about that uh, media industrial complex, right? I'm hoping that they're looking at the hit that they took during. COVID because of COVID last year and we'll use this as an opportunity to kind of jumpstart uh, you know take college football to the next level of interest and revenue because you know we're going to talk about this in a little bit you know with the name image likeness discussion uh, there's there are going to be wholesale changes in how players are compensated and what schools can do and what schools can can provide and that money's going to have to come from somewhere, right? And I think this 
So I'm hoping that what we're seeing with this college football playoff idea being floated is that we're not going to wait till the you know 2025 26 season. You know, I'm hoping it's going to happen in the next year or two that they're going to realize they're going to take this crisis and use it as an opportunity to improve things not only for the fans but for the players as well. Yep, yeah, I, I agree with that. I think the to try to kind of package a bunch of the changes together, you know, it, kind of the healing process after multiple injuries can can kind of go at the same time, you're going to be down and out anyway, you know, that then you might as well get everything worked on and uh, back up and, and tuned up. So I think it is a good time to kind of look at everything and make all the changes um, that are necessary. That's a great point. Um, the other, the other major power broker here that frustrates me still is the, is the bowl system <clears throat> and, and, those um, interests and different uh, bowl corporations or committees or whatever they call themselves, depending on, on which you're talking about, you know, those folks are still going to have a say in, in all of this also. And some of the uh, traditional New Year's bowls are still going to have to, uh, to be a part of, of the process. So I think that you'll see some, some twisting and turning and, and, and different uh, political gymnastics done in order to keep um, those bowls and those committees uh, part of the, the the conversation and the process, and then those games will likely um, be uh, the the semifinal games and quarterfinal games, and, and either rotate or, or somehow ranked in importance and, and and given their slots on a given year. So. That's just one one other group of stakeholders that we hadn't mentioned yet that uh, also will um, certainly will be involved and, and to what extent I think is uh, is still kind of to be determined because they they also obviously have a lot of power and influence and uh, a lot of uh, annual revenue and, and expense on the uh, on the line in the conversation with what happens in December and January during bowl season. Absolutely, and uh, I, I think that's a, that's an important part of the uh, firmament of college football that I'm not sure everyone appreciates, right? Um, you know, the, the bowl scouts, the bowl representatives are working year-round, and when you look at, um, you know, how different states and different organizations um, plan on funding you know, when they expand a stadium or build a stadium, they build in a huge chunk of revenue that's going to be uh, garnered from the bowls, right? You know, and again, we talk about Indianapolis, right? And again, no dissing the great people of Indianapolis, but, um, and, and I hope to go there for a Big Ten championship game one day. Um, I have been there for a uh, NCAA basketball tournament game. Great, great city, great time. But, again, part of funding that whole athletic complex down there are these postseason bowls and postseason tournaments. And um, I think when you look at this college football playoff expansion, um, the, the, the group that is most threatened are the bowls because, um, again, they have that time slot built in. Um, I, I remember Clint... Um, during the Rich Rod era, when Michigan 
uh, broke its, you know, had its streak broken of going to bowl games. I remember talking to somebody who just was a casual, super casual football fan and just always planned their, um, you know, their, their December vacations around where Michigan would be going bowling and how shocked they were that Michigan didn't make a bowl. How would Michigan dare threaten their, uh, their holiday travels, right? So you you not only have the um, you know the bowl complex, but you have the universities that um, you know reward their staff with those trips. You know um, when Michigan goes down for a bowl, they always go down way early to to get acclimated. And again, it is a nice perk for the staff. But um, you know one of the ways you can do that is you can negotiate. You can have these. Um, travel plans in place and and you can trade with different organizations depending on which bowl you're going to go into with a with this kind of college football playoff schedule um, you're not going to be able to plan ahead as far and um, while I think it's going to be a really compelling product on the field I understand the uh, the the logistical challenges right Um, just just imagine you know if you're trying to go to you know, we talked about how it's going to uh, increase the number of games for the players. You know, you're also, uh, you know, dragging your fan base along, right? And there are going to be plenty of people who are super, super excited to do that. But it, but you're also going to kind of price out a certain number of fans who uh, who may not be able to travel to two or three away games in a row. So there is a lot to consider. And um, overall, I, I think it's a good thing. Now... I think you and I agree, Clinton, and and tell me if I'm wrong. I think I think that this is just something that's going to happen, okay? We don't know when. We don't know the exact details, but I think you and I agree that something like this needs to happen and will happen. Yeah, absolutely. If there's too much money on the table for the, at the highest end for them to ignore getting more high-stakes playoff-style games at the end of the season. So one of the things that I think might be a cautionary tale, and, uh, you know, we don't follow European soccer uh, too closely. Many people don't follow it too closely here in the States. But one of the things that, uh, that was attempted in the last couple months was they tried to spin up a, a super league for European soccer, or football, as they call it, right? And what's interesting is, when I look at what they tried to do, there are many of the hallmarks, the characteristics of what college football is trying to do, right? And they tried, they floated this idea of a super league. It was going to generate all this revenue. And it just fell apart. It collapsed like a house of cards, uh, uh, like a fart in the wind. It was gone. And what's interesting is many of the reasons that we're talking about you know, generating huge chunks of revenue, uh, uh, TV ratings. Many of the reasons that I think the college football playoff will work are some of the reasons that I thought the European Soccer League would make a lot of sense. And and again, it just it just collapsed. So, um, Clint, what what are your thoughts on the lessons that uh, the uh, NCAA and the networks and the media and the bowls can learn from? the failure of, of what happened over with the uh, the European Super League? Well, 
I think the the lesson that is most apparent from all of that, without without knowing all of the intricacies and the details, but really it's about trust or lack of trust, distrust um, in between the the power brokers in, in any given organization or, or or group of organizations. So we saw this a lot with the decision process um, going into the 20 season with the COVID shutdowns and the NCAA was revealed to be a total paper tiger and that the leagues, the conferences actually had all of the power and there was no unifying force to, to, to try to make any uh, collective good for the game decisions everybody was left um at a conference basis and, and then of course the conferences are a collection of universities and some conferences are more beholden to certain universities and their power brokers as well so really individual power brokers um groups of of, of organizations together um and and what binds them for the for the greater good it really needs to be analyzed and understood before you can make a decision that is is kind of on the scale of the the playoff expansion like we're talking about or this European uh, soccer league. Um, I think the the Super League concept really is case to increase revenue and take care of of. Um, some of the glaring issues that they have right now, uh, especially financial issues with their highest profile programs um, and clubs, but you know that that comes at the detriment of, of some others. So um, when when some power brokers made a play to try to help themselves um, under the guise of, of increasing revenue from everybody, which is true on paper but also would have been more impactful for certain programs. Um, you know, th- they saw through that thinly veiled power play. And as soon as, you know, somebody started to pull against it, then, then everybody did. And I think the public uh, outcry for, um, you know, to, to resist uh, a consolidation of, of such, um, you know, of the power to to a handful of the clubs was really what what soured most of the the, the fan base and and the public and that uh, in turn anybody that was on the fence and thought eh, maybe I'll get a, a couple extra pennies in my pocket by making this decision you know it doesn't hurt or help me but I'll take the extra revenue and then the fans you know kind of uh, revolted uh, toward that uh, against that consolidation of power, then you know clubs immediately you know dropped that as if it were toxic and, and didn't want to uh, didn't want to disrupt their fan bases. So um, that those lessons I think all could echo to, uh, to to college football. You know it's a very factional sport. We saw that very much with uh, the response to the COVID pandemic. Um, I think it would be wise to make sure that you iron out uh, all of those uh, details between the different power brokers with the 
Power Five conferences, the Group of Five conferences, the Bowls, uh, our, our favorite independent schools. Um, all of those people are going to have to be able to get their voices uh, into the conversation, and then then some strong leadership is going to ha- is going to be necessary to uh, to make decisions that are best for for the collective, and then we move forward. So if uh, if it's done incorrectly, it, it, it you know, this sport is is on a similar shaky foundation, and uh, people will will quickly turn and be very upset if uh, if this opportunity gets squandered. You know, it's it's interesting because you mentioned how um, some universities are more beholden to their to their states, right? And their uh, you know whether they're a private university or a public university and. Uh, you know, you have donors and you have different supporters thrown in the mix. What's interesting about uh, when I was reading and doing research about the European Super League was you basically had, um, you know, different nations like saying, hey, we're not going to do this. We're not going to let you make this change. You know, there was a lot of provincialism about, of, you know, needing to uh I guess national pride, right? Of, hey, you're not going to do this. You're, you know, you're part of a greater whole, and and we don't want to see a change like this. What is interesting is that you know the the proponents of this plan are saying, and uh, you know we don't have access to their financials, but they're saying that you know this is a change that needs to happen to help European soccer survive as it moves forward, and. You know, my guess is we're going to see a reboot of this plan at some point. Uh, but I, I think it does make sense for, uh, for fo- you know, NCAA, you know, college football fans to look at what these other leagues are doing and whatever and, whatever, and the mistakes that they make because, you know, there's no new ideas, right? You just take ideas from other places. And it would be really interesting at some point to get a view from the European side on how they would view the college football expansion versus how we view what they're trying to do with, with soccer, right? Um, because you really have, um, on one hand, you'd say, well, you have two groups that are too big to fail, right? And yet, you know, you say that until somebody fails. And I think the, uh, you know, the turmoil, the turbulence that college football is going through, you know, post-COVID, um, the players being um, the players uh, being empowered, um, you you definitely have a lot of changes happening, and it's going to be interesting to see. Um, you know, you know, again, I I think another thing I think you and I can agree on. I don't I I don't have a real high opinion of the NCAA as an organization. Um, you know, we saw how they how they completely failed at managing COVID, and uh, even even the you know the conference has kind of failed by having a, a disjointed response. So it's going to be interesting to see um, who steps up to get this done correctly. And uh, you know, I, you know, I always think back to you know there are sports that used to be huge. Okay, there are sports that were too big to fail. And, you know, you can look back historically, boxing is one of those, um, horse racing, okay? There are sports that were, that used to hold the national attention. 
and and then they don't right and it's it's i hope that uh that you know football in general you know still uh maintains its its status at the top of the heap but you know there are a lot of challenges coming and uh hopefully they can learn from some of these other from some of these other uh miscalculations by by other leagues yeah um, I, there's a the, the major threat also that's common with uh with what happened in europe and and what's happening here is um you know there's a, a major debt problem with some of the largest uh clubs in the in the european soccer game and and now with these budget constraints that um the the, the universities in the ncaa are facing there's that same financial pressure to make revenue first decisions and, and those decisions um, could could lead to to some of the same mistakes so I I would use that that as a tale of caution um, to where if revenue is placed highest on the list of priorities um, and you don't at least get to the to the end of that list and review how what impact you're having, um, then, then you could be setting yourself up for a negative backlash, and, and that um, it would not take it would not take a total tsunami of, of public opinion to shift for for all of this to crumble. Um, it's it we we saw again that the, the foundation is already kind of uh, kind of shaky. So there's um, you know th- th- there needs to be a, a significant level of of thought and care put into how the, the next steps are taken. And um, really the most important thing is to acknowledge that you've heard all of the, the, the relevant stakeholders and, and then move forward with one plan that, that everybody can get behind. Well, and I think that's one thing to consider is that, again, you think you're too big to fail, but there are a number of things coming down. You know, you have the concussion thing that could uh, drastically impact advertising and and, and uh, interest in the sport. You know, it's interesting. You were talking about, hey, you know, the decision in Europe for the soccer league was driven by, you know, some of these teams have huge debt. Well, that's the situation over at, at Michigan right now, right? You have all this investment in the new athletic campus. And uh, listen, I, I think that the new athletic campus for soccer and for, lacro- and for lacrosse is great, but it doesn't generate revenue, right? And you have the uh, investment in Michigan Stadium. Well, that was going to be your cash cow until last year, right? So now you have a huge, huge dent in your budget, right? And, you know, uh, speaking of, you know, we're, we're seeing... Uh, you know, Michigan is advertising ticket packets, right? Ticket packages for alumni and for family that for the first time that I can ever remember includes Ohio State, okay? So, you know, I, I, I've kicked this idea around. I wonder, um, you know, with the uh, the COVID backlash, right, how many people aren't going to come back to the stadium? We know there's a ton of people who can't wait to get back. But, you know, did last year break the habit for people? Did last year um, put a chill into some of the older alumni that, you know, I I don't need to do this. I don't need to be exposed to, you know, 100,000 people at a time. 
I wonder if this is the year that the 100,000 uh, attendance streak is going to be broken. And when you see that they're offering ticket packages that seem to be marketing to families and, and uh, you know, advertising individual tickets to Ohio State being available, I'm wondering on the back end what uh, what kind of interest we're seeing or lack of interest we're seeing in, in renewals and uh, in alumni picking up extra tickets. Yeah, I think it's a reasonable question, you know, and then there's obviously the, the, the central factor for, for the state of Michigan and, and casual fans and, and, and those that don't have necessarily the deep roots to the university, you know, it's that the, the team is, did not play well in 2020 and, and in the years in the Jim Harbaugh era that they have played well and put together streaks of being a really powerful team, you know, they still haven't gotten it done in the biggest moments. So I think, um, you know, that there are a lot of environmental factors that are play with uh, the folks that, that would be filling the stadium, you know, but also, you know, it, it kind of starts and, 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 and finishes with the team needs to play better on Saturdays. And, and you know, that's, um, that's another part of driving um, some of these market uh, ticket markets and, and packages and marketing is that uh, you know you are coming off of a two to four season that that you know by most accounts would have been worse if uh, if some of those games in the late season hadn't been canceled. So um, that's it's a big part of it. Michigan's got to play well, and I think if September goes well on the field and, and Michigan plays well and can win those non-conference games especially the game against uh washington who's going to be a legitimately tough uh non-conference opponent um but if you win those those games and are sitting there uh at three and oh four and oh going into the big 10 season um then the the ticket issue um will 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 be forgotten if we can get to that point if michigan does not play well is shaky in some of those non-conference games, maybe drops that game against Washington and is three and one or two and two after four games, then this conversation probably gets the volume turned up a lot louder. All right. Uh, Another big uh, adjustment that the college football powers are going to have to deal with is athletes can now profit from name, image, and likeness. Uh, They have released some, I would say, some contradictory guidelines, but at least there are guidelines out there for players to move forward. I think we're going to see this moving forward in a lot of different ways and as the details worked out, get worked out. And what's going to be interesting is how do individual universities leverage uh, these NIL opportunities to, to help in recruiting? It's interesting because... You know, I think that uh, from what I've seen on the Michigan side so far, you know, you have players who are who are very ready for this, ready to take advantage and um, willing to test the waters to see how this is going to work, how they can profit from it. You know, what's interesting for me is that I think, um, you know, and, and most specifically, you know, we're seeing... Uh, you know, Dax Hill has a line of T-shirts. 
Um, uh, you know, Aiden Hutchinson has has some some shirts, and it's going to be interesting to see. You know, uh, some of the players are are leveraging with gaming companies, and I really don't think we know how this is going to work out. Okay, but we're going to see a lot of different experiments. And what I think is what it's going to do is, you know, I wonder if Dax Hill has a really big game, how will that impact the sale of his of his merchandise? Right. Um, I think it's going to give fans um, a way to kind of vote. Right. Where you can you can tangibly support a player if if they have merchandise available you know, if you really like what they're doing and you want to help them out, you'll have an opportunity to do that. So it's going to be interesting to see how this uh, how this wave um, ebbs and flows over the season. Yeah, I think the, the the strongest feeling that I have right now with NIL is that you and I have been talking about this for, for at least the last six months and probably closer to the last year that um, – it was likely coming, it was likely coming, it was likely coming, but it still feels that it kind of zipped into place here um, very quickly, and, and, and the NCAA, uh, first and foremost, uh, w- was not prepared, right? So they lost their case at the Supreme Court, where they were still trying to make the argument that the old traditional definition of amateurism and that business model is the way to go, that got slapped down pretty hard unanimously you know it's amazing to me that only the ncaa can can unify the the political factions in in america and everybody hates the ncaa equally from the right and from the left so um the the fact that they they lost that case and then said well okay now we've got these state laws that are gonna be on the books starting july 1st i guess we'll have to send out these guidelines so it's, it's very slapped together, and it's an interim set of guidelines now until they come up with a longer-term plan. Um, so th- there's going to be a lot more questions than answers as we get into this season. But at this time next year, um, you know, if we kind of circle the calendar, uh, I think we'll have a much better idea of what it means from a macro scale and what it means – much more from a micro scale for Michigan as a university, as a program, uh, as an athletic program, and then also for, for the individual players. So right now, I think just like anything that is emerging, the people that have kind of innovative thoughts and ideas and kind of an entrepreneurial spirit, the first ones out there with these good ideas are going to, they're going to hit it a little bit bigger than the others. And by this time next year, things will have kind of settled and, and everybody will have kind of glommed onto the the three or four best models and, and we'll be able to kind of look and see what's happening a little bit uh, more clearly. It's going to be interesting to me is, so you're a player and you're being interviewed, right? Are you going to be able to mention, hey, go to whatever to support my stuff, right? Um, it's It's going to be really interesting. And, you know, I, I think about all the opportunities that players have to interact with folks, either in the media, e- either doing interviews or or out in public. And, uh, you know, the first thing I thought is, you know, there's there's a whole media scrum, right? Well, if you're going to a Dax Hill 
interview, you know, a way to get a question is to wear a Dax Hill shirt. So, <laughs> you know, it's going to be interesting to see how this impacts the whole the whole landscape, right? And and like you said, I think, you know, it's going to be interesting, you know, we can revisit this every so often and and there are going to be some things that work, but I think it's safe to say this is the beginning of a much bigger shift and and one that hopefully is going to benefit the players in a real positive way. Yeah, I think I think it's a positive shift um certainly. Uh, more more access and freedom to kind of capitalize on the images and the brands that that the kids are making for themselves. This isn't even, you know, as much as we've talked about kind of revenue sharing and players being compensated in the past, this is, this is in that arena, but it's not that directly, right? This is not the universities cutting checks to the players. This is, you know, their ability to market themselves as a, as any other, you know, regular citizen or even just, their peers on campus that don't happen to play an NCAA sport, you know, this is just putting them on to equal footing with that, um, with with obviously uh, exponentially greater uh, profiles. So I, I think this is the shift in the right direction. Um, but there will be there will be ups and downs. There will certainly be uh, some problems to work out, and uh, we'll, we'll deal with those. But I think on the whole, this is going to be a benefit for the players, and I hope that Michigan um, can show that they, they were more prepared for this shift um, than, than the NCAA at large and not only helps their players maximize their potential in this, but can also uh, point to a history of helping those players and, and eventually uh, showing that this will help them um, and, and become another recruiting tool. That would be That would be ideal for Michigan as we get into, the, you know, the end of this season and, and we'll be able to see how, uh, how well um, Michigan was able to guide their players in in this conversation. Absolutely. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of the umgoblue.com podcast. This is Phil Callahan along with Clint Derringer. Go blue. Thank you for listening to the umgoblue.com podcast. All rights reserved. Search for umgoblue.com on iTunes. Go Blue.